0: All right, the Diet of Worms. No, we're not talking about eating a diet of worms. Diet basically means council. And a council that was held in Worms, Germany in 1521. It was an imperial council to decide the fate of, of Martin Luther. Yeah, here's a picture of Martin He was being called before the leaders of the church and state to answer for what they were calling his heretical writings. And so the opening day was in the spring. It was April 17th. And after being called upon to recant, Luther said, I need some time to think about this. Which is surprising. Surprising. Because he had been so bold in his denouncing of the Pope and the church. And uh, Sproul uses the term, he's like a whimpering dog. Just, I need some time, I need to think about this. And so he was given time and he went back to his, his quarters where he was staying. And he wrote a prayer that we're privileged to have. Because he was crying out to God for strength and for courage. To stand before the rulers of the church and state, the most powerful men in the world. And so in your notes, I've got that prayer. It's good for you to have, maybe to stick in your Bible someplace. Oh God, Almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is this world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in thee, oh the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If, if I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The nail is struck. Sentence has gone forth. Oh God. Oh God. Oh thou my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech you. Thou, thou shouldst do this by Thine own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine. And it is righteous and everlasting. O Lord, help me, O O faithful and unchangeable God. I lean not upon man, it were vain. Whatever is of man is tottering, whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost not hide thyself. Although thou dost but hide thyself, thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O oh God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold, Lord. Where, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come. I pray thee, I am ready. Behold me, prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. For the cause is thine, it is thine own. I will not let thee go, no, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of thine hand, should be cast forth, under underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen. Oh, God, send help. Amen. And so that's Martin Luther, the diet of worms, crying out in need of courage. Well, the next day, it was in the afternoon, he started to give an answer, and he was pressed. The Inquisitor said, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns do you or do you not repudiate your works and the errors which they contain? And he was said to have responded in this manner, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, Amen. And so we see here Martin Luther on trial for his proclamation of the gospel, standing before the leaders of the church and state, needing courage. Right? That's Martin Luther. And that's our passage today. In our passage today, the apostles are on trial before the Sanhedrin, the ruling leaders in Jerusalem, and they're on trial for their proclamation of the gospel, their proclamation of Christ. And they are in need of courage. They've been told before, you need to cease and desist from proclaiming this Jesus. We're done with this stuff. And here they are on trial again for that same proclamation. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're in a passage that is very pertinent to your life because we're going to talk about courage. And if you're like me, you need courage. When it comes to obeying God... And in particular, when it comes to obeying God in witnessing of Christ, because that's what they needed courage to do, to continue to proclaim Christ in a city where many, at least the religious establishment, was opposed to their proclamation. So you should have your Bible open. No excuses. There's a Bible in front of you, probably in the pew. There should be. And your notes out and a pen, and I'm anticipating you'll take down some notes and maybe discuss this later. And my message is titled, Courage to Go, Stand, and Speak. And it comes right out of our passage. So we see it's going to be relevant for our lives. We're people in need of courage. We need motivation for courage, right? Right? At least I do. Yeah. Now, let's talk about context. We always like to talk about relevancy and context. And what I've been emphasizing, at least last week, and want to re-emphasize this week, is just the movement in the early chapters of Acts. We've been in the book long enough to see that the church was triumphant, but it had trouble. It made progress, but there were problems. In fact, we've seen a number of progress reports, haven't we? We've already looked at three of them. But the movement seems to go almost back and forth. In Acts chapter 2, we read of Pentecost. What a day for the church, its formation. The Spirit is poured out. Peter preaches. Some 3,000 respond. In Acts chapter 3, there's a progress report in Acts 2, and I should not fly by that because that's where we find our priorities as a church, don't we? From that progress report, the kind of involvements they had. Acts 2.42, what did they do in the early church? They were continually devoting themselves to? Somebody help me out here. I'll stand here all day. was teaching the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So that comes out of one of the progress reports. Well, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple and there's a lame man. They don't have any money to give him, but they say in the name of Jesus Christ, walk And the man not only walks, he leaps and praises God. And they go into the temple, A crowd gathers, and Peter says, Great opportunity to teach Jesus, proclaim Jesus. And he does. And we're told 5,000 men respond. So the the church is exploding in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, we're given another progress report. Then Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. So, so there's this progress and triumph, but there's these problems. There's this, these problems from the outside against the church. And then problems from within, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the apostle Peter. A bad thing to do. They actually were testing God because they said they gave all their money for some property and only given part of it. And, and so they're called out for what? And it says in our passage they were testing God to, to see if he really was aware, that if he really cared. And is God aware and does he care about what's going on in his church? Yes. Is he? Does he? Yes. Oh, he does. Acts chapter 5, another progress report. In fact, that precedes what we see with the apostles' arrest. And then in chapter 6, there's going to be division over widows, another progress report, Stephen's arrest and martyrdom, and boom, the church is pushed out of its, in a sense, comfort zone. It's pushed out of Jerusalem, and it's going to proceed eventually to the whole world, right? Yeah. So that's the movement. We have this sense of going back and forth. And and so we're in chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. And what I simply want to do is just kind of lope through our passage. We're just going to read a paragraph and look at it and talk about a paragraph. I'm not going to read all of it, but the most of it. And so we start out in verse 17. The high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking him out. He said, go stand, speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And so we read here of the high priest who in chapter four is identified as Annas Along with his associates, he was a Sadducee. And we read that they were what? Say this with me. Filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. There's a great deal of angst taking place. The Sadducees were a sect within Judaism. There were a number of different sects in Judaism. The Pharisees, the Zealots, the Herodians, a number of them. But the Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the upper class, had a strong ruling presence in the Sanhedrin and in the temple. And so if you think about that, you understand that they were concerned with maintaining the status quo. Okay? Why would they be concerned with maintaining the status quo? Because they were in power. We like things the way they are. And you apostles are starting to upset the apple cart. Right? They're angry. They're, they're, they're jealous. They're seen as theological liberals. At least they're spoken of that way because they denied a resurrection. No resurrection. They denied angelic beings, demonic beings, only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so we're told they were filled with jealousy. And we're going to get a sense as we move through this trial of sorts, the the anger, the jealousy, the frustration on the part of the religious establishment in dealing with the apostles. But why are they jealous? I probably have already alluded to different reasons why. But the section preceding this, verses 12 through 14 or 12 through 15, is a progress report. We read all that's going on in the early church. The apostles are performing signs and wonders. I mean, it's amazing. So amazing that when Peter, if they can't get to Peter, they're putting people on cots so that if his shadow would fall across them, they would be healed. There's this tremendous growth, there's this popularity, I think we can say, of the apostles. There's this esteem even of of non-believers concerning the church. And so you can see that the religious establishment in Jerusalem would be jealous, right? That's not hard to connect these dots. And so they arrest the apostles and put them in jail. But we read that an angel shows up. Now, that's ironic, because the Sadducees did not believe in angels. But despite their unbelief, one shows up, frees the apostles, and commands them in in verse 20, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. You're free, you've been arrested, yeah, they're mad at you. But go preach the gospel, this message of life. Now, you see, life is capitalized. And probably, I read through different translations, maybe about half of the translations capitalize it. Many don't, but it's capitalized in the New American Standard, from what I understand, to to point to Christ, a proper title. And we know that in Jesus is found life, right? So it's very appropriate. He is the means of eternal life. He is the light of life. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And so they're proclaiming the life that's found in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read the next section. Verses 21 through 26. What happens is the apostle, excuse me, the Sanhedrin calls for the apostles. They want them to be brought from prison, and so the officers go off to the public jail, the prison, to bring the apostles back, and and find that though the doors are locked and the guards are there, there are no apostles. They're gone. They're gone. And notice verse twenty-four. We read that. The Sanhedrin, they were all greatly perplexed. Which is to say what? They're entirely at a loss. They really don't know, what what do we do now? We've convened, we're supposed to hold these guys in trial, and they're not here, and then somebody runs in and says, hey! Uh, I know where they're at, they're at the temple. They're preaching at and teaching at the temple. And so the officers go off. They're careful in bringing these guys back, knowing the popularity of the apostles, don't want anything to happen, and they come before the Sanhedrin. And so now the trial is going to take place. So notice verse 27. When they had brought the apostles, they stood them before the Sanhedrin or the council and the high priest questioned them. Now let me give a little bit of inflection to this, because I don't think he rather milk toast just kind of uh, uh we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. There may have been a certain dignity that was with his position, but he he's they're, they're jealous, and we're going to see that they get very angry. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so I think we should see here a, a frustrated, angst, angry, jealous council. And they're angry for two reasons. So there's this question mark and this exclamation, there's this anger. They're angry for two reasons. One, the apostles had been given strict orders not to teach about Jesus. And here they were filling Jerusalem with his teaching. And number two, the high priest says that they had been blaming the Sanhedrin for Jesus' death. Not only are you proclaiming Jesus, but you're telling them that it's our fault he went to the cross. They're not happy. They're not happy. And in what follows, Peter answers for the apostles. Notice verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. I have that in bold because I think that's the key statement of the whole section. We must obey God rather than men. You told us not to preach. God's told us to preach. You do the math, but we're going to preach. Right? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. And forgiveness of sins. Can you see Peter? He's really answering why they're still preaching Jesus. But here he's preaching. Verse 32. And we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so we ask of Peter's answer. Peter, why are you continuing to teach and preach Jesus? Because that's what the high priest wants to know. We told you to stop. And you're blaming, not only are you preaching him, but you're blaming us. And so why? And Peter gives us, I think, four reasons why. Why? I think we find four reasons, and maybe you'll find more as you study Peter's response. But reason number one is we must obey God rather than man. That's reason number one. You told us not to proclaim Jesus. God has commanded us to proclaim Jesus, and we must obey God rather than man. We know who we get our marching orders from. That's reason number one. Reason number two, and I'm wanting us to look at this because it provides courage, it provides motivation. It's the basis of why they proclaimed him. Number one, we are obeying God rather than man. And then reason number two is knowing the content of what we're proclaiming. You see, they were acting, yes, in obedience to what they had been commanded to do, and that was to proclaim Christ. But we find here Peter enamored with the message that they were proclaiming. Do we not? What does he say here? We're going to proclaim Christ. You put him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. And he has raised him and exalted him to his right hand and poured out his spirit. He is the prince and the savior. And in him is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So that provides motivation for their proclamation. Gives them courage. The message that they were proclaiming, they're proclaiming life. Where there was death, they were proclaiming light where there was darkness. Why else? Why are you continuing to preach Jesus, Peter? Now this is good for us. and in fact, in a minute here I'm going to apply it and say of us, why do we? or why do we fail to? Reason number three, Peter says, we're witnesses of these things. You know, it's not just a message out there. It's not just God has commanded to proclaim a message out there. We're witnesses of these things. We have participated in these things. We walked with Jesus. We saw him hung on a cross. We saw an empty tomb. We watched him ascend into heaven. We're witnesses of these things. We're not going to shut up. Isn't that what's going on? Yep. We've been commanded to. But we delight in what we've been commanded to proclaim. And we have personally witnessed these things. And then number four, Peter says, so is the Holy Spirit. We witness of these things and so does the Holy Spirit. We're not doing this in our own strength. We're not alone. This is big. It really helps to have courage when you know who goes with you. And here he says, the Holy Spirit is also witnessing of these things. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So he enables them, and not only does the Spirit enable them to witness, the Spirit goes before them in His witness, drawing people to Christ. So there's a lot here, isn't there? In Peter's answer, nod your heads. Don't lie and nod your head. If you don't think so, then go this way. But there's a lot here as far as where does the courage come from to continue to proclaim Christ when we told you not to? Where do you find the motivation? And that's what we want to ask ourselves as we look at this. Where does courage come from to obey God? And and in particular, in our passage, to witness of Christ. And I happen to think that this is something we struggle with. I do. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'll raise my hand. I struggle with courage and witnessing of Christ. And, And I'm going to guess you do too. I mean, I guess we all do. There's maybe different situations where we're very comfortable witnessing of Christ. But there's some circumstances where it just comes hard. Right? Yep. Yeah. This is so practical. This is the kind of stuff we struggle with. So where am I going to find the motivation? Where am I going to find the courage? Well, let's look back at what Peter had to say. Number one, knowing who commands us to witness. Right, We must obey God rather than man. What what did Jesus say to his disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And so we have been commanded to witness, to make disciples. Number two, knowing the content of what we have been commanded to proclaim. and I've gotten all excited about this already, but we proclaim a message of life. We bring a message of life into a culture of death. We bring a message of light into a culture of darkness. We are proclaiming the living God. We are stepping into our culture and speaking of Jesus Christ in whom is found forgiveness of sins and newness of life. The fact that He was put in the tomb, yes, to atone for our sins, but God raised Him from the dead, exalted Him to His right hand, and at His right hand He poured out the Spirit, and in Jesus Christ we have forgiveness of sins and newness of life. That's where the courage should come from. That's where the motivation should come from. But we struggle with that because we become so comfortable with the message, and that's a shame. And I talk to myself, we've heard the message time and time and time again, right? And we just need a dose of the reality of the message we profess. Maybe a dose of our culture and seeing where it's going and how it's come off the rails and how desperately it needs somebody to speak up and proclaim where life is found. Amen? And it doesn't have to be done with this tone of voice and this kind of excitement. They'd probably walk off and leave you. But to speak up. Reason number three, knowing it's changed our lives. This is a real personal question, but has the gospel changed your life? Has it changed your life? If it has, you should be motivated and say, i got to share this. You know, how does it go? One bigger sharing with another bigger where to find bread. It's like, this has changed my life. And, and finally, knowing we don't witness alone. Well, we're not witnessing alone. That, that should motivate us. I shared in the earlier service, and there 's a group going out this afternoon to witness downtown and, and we speak of divine appointments that comes from D James to Kennedy, I believe, out of his evangelism explosion, but this idea we 're looking for divine appointments. We realize that we don 't go out in our own energy, and actually the spirit of God has preceded us, and we 're looking for those people within whom he 's already at work that 's how I go i don 't go looking for an argument. I don't think I can argue somebody into the kingdom of God. I'm not that good. And neither are you. It takes the activity of the Spirit of God. But the encouragement is the Spirit of God has come for that purpose. He convicts the world of sin and of judgment and of who Christ is. Wow. Motivation. Oh, these great realities we profess, we say are part of our lives. Oh, may they again stir our minds and our hearts. This is a doctor, Ignace Sammelweis. Lived back in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, so about 175 years ago. He, He practiced medicine at this hospital, the Vienna General Hospital. He's an obstetrician. Delivered babies. He struggled with his practice. Why? Because he saw so many babies being born, and just within a few days, mom and baby were dead. They died. It's known as child bed fever, pupural fever. They died this horrible death. And so he's struggling. Why? Why is this happening? And so he's looking for answers. He thought, well, maybe it has to do with the position of the mother she's giving birth. Or oh, the priest would go through the hospital and ring a bell when there was a death at least this ward and 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 he thought well maybe scaring the ladies maybe that's it I mean he's looking for around him he's so bothered by the death he was seeing all around him and the answer he came up with was it was because doctors had not been washing their hands that's why. Because what happened is they practiced medicine then, the doctors, that they were scientists of sorts. And thus they would do autopsies on these women who had died in the morning. They didn't have latex gloves. They didn't have rubber gloves. They did it with their bare hands. And then they would move by doing these, uh, these autopsies and then they would go to deliver babies. So you, you, you live in a different century. You know what's going on. They're passing on these germs. But Dr. Samuel Weiss learned that if the doctors washed their hands in chlorinated waters, it it was a game changer. It changed everything. Wow. What good news. The challenge on his part was getting other doctors to believe him. Many doctors did not want to believe him, didn't want to accept the fact that they were the cause of all of these deaths. He continued to press in and he was bold in telling them. In fact, he got angry, lost his position at the hospital, ended up at an insane asylum and institutionalized. Bold in telling these doctors, watch, this is a statement said to have come from him. Childbirth fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I've shown how it can be prevented. I have proven all that I've said, but while we talk, 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 women are dying. I'm not asking for anything world-shaking, only that you wash your hands. Why? Because he'll be a game-changer. We'll save these lives. Let me transition that to us and our passage. We should be bold and courageous in sharing the gospel. Why is that? It's because Jesus is life. Jesus is life. That's why the apostles, the the angels said to them, you go stand and preach this message of life in the temple. We're preaching a message of life. And that's the opportunity we have. It's a message of life, not death. It's a message of light, not darkness. We have the privilege of proclaiming, and I'm redundant, and I want to be redundant in the sense of, that, that Jesus came He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was hung on a cross, all according to God's plan to atone for our sins. But God raised Him from the dead, exalted Him to His right hand, and poured out His Spirit, and we can live in newness of life and forgiveness of sins. That's the message we are privileged to proclaim. Wow. And that's Peter. That's the apostles. And if my history serves me correctly, what happened to all of them? Died martyrs' death, willing to die for the proclamation of this message. Wow, and there are brothers and sisters around the world who are dying for this message. Oh, God, stir our hearts anew. Amen? Oh, we're so comfortable with it. Let's go back to our passage. What happens? But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Would you say to me, mad? No, 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 that won't do. Mad. mad. That's a start. Mad. mad. Yep. Those in the Sanhedrin are mad. They're beside themselves. They're cut to the quick. We read already that they were jealous, right? They're, they're, they're angry. They're perplexed was the term used. They're, they're, they're cut to the quick. They are mad. And in their anger, they decide, we're going to kill you. This is pretty tough. We told you to stop. You continue to proclaim him. You're blaming us, and now you're talking like you're going to go out and continue to do it. You're dead. And then we read of a man with a bit more wisdom, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. Stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a time. He said, "What he's saying is, guys, hold off, hold off. We better reason this through. It would be hard for me to overstate the status of Gamaliel. He was the foremost rabbi of his generation. His grandfather was Hillel, another great rabbi. We're talking the 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 the, the The best known. And in fact, Gamaliel taught who? Paul. Paul. Yep, the apostle Paul. So he says, look, let me bring some sanity to this insanity. And he says this, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you purpose to do, propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, this is my advice, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. Yeah. And so Gamaliel advises them against doing anything rash or foolish. Give this all some time. And I think what we find here in his statement is our second key statement in all of it: is, is If God is for them, notice this, if this is be your action, it will be overthrown. I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if God is, it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. What a statement. If God is for them, you're not going to stop this. And it had to be a great encouragement on the part of the apostles to see those words coming off the lips of Gamaliel. If God is for them, you're not going to stop this. Yes, the fact that he wanted to to spare their lives, but the declaration of what he was making. If God is for them, you're not going to stop this. What an encouragement to them. And as they went back to the early church, they probably said, you should have heard what Gamaliel said. Uh, He stopped our execution, but he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we know God is for us, right? Mm -hmm. I was speaking prophetically through Gamaliel. made me think of Romans 8. I go to Romans 8 all the time, don't I? What a great declaration because Romans 8 is all about suffering. We're suffering in this broken world, persecuted. And because of it, there's all kinds of groaning that takes place. There's a groaning that takes place in the creation order. It groans being broken. There's a groaning that takes place in the life of believers because of their being persecuted. They're, they're, they're suffering. And then Paul talks about the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Read the passage. I encourage, I've encouraged us in the past, probably multiple times to read the passage. It's all about groaning. And, and then what we find in verse 28, which is a favorite verse of so many people, that God is answering the groanings of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. Answers to prayer. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Yeah. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. Oh yeah. God's working out his purposes in our lives. And in those grand statements, verses 31 and 32, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? They're very parallel, isn't it, to Gamaliel and what he is saying. If God is for him, you aren't going to be able to put this down. And Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The argument goes from the greater to the lesser. Paul is saying, if God gave his son and did such a great thing, then will he not certainly give us all that we need, freely give us in him all things that we need? The argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is for us, who can be against us? And to have that confidence, really. And we should have that confidence as we go. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Oh, to go with that confidence. We go under his authority, with his authority, knowing that God is for us as we do such things. Oh, what an encouragement these thoughts should be to us, brothers and sisters. Well, what does the Sanhedrin do? Notice, they took his advice, called the apostles in, flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and released them. So they flogged them. They beat the dickens out of them. 39 lashes, 13 on the front, 26 on the back. They limited it to 39. They were allowed 40 under the law. But they didn't want to go beyond that, so they cut back one. Did that stop the apostles? No. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching. Isn't that great? Those little <laughs> They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Yeah. How could they rejoice? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You can rejoice. You can be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They went away rejoicing. That they were able to suffer for the cause of Christ. Identify with him. Be identified with him. And then knowing that they would be rewarded for their sufferings. In your notes I have some questions. I'm just going to click through them. I'm not going to look at them. They're for you really as you leave here to to, to dig further into this passage. I found myself yesterday, and I work with this passage, this passage in a passage almost all week and, and seeing new insights, and, and that's the way God's word is. So so you may go home and you say you may come back to me midweek and say, you know, Pastor Joe, you missed a really key thing here. And I would say, make my day. Make my day. It would thrill me to see that you're studying God's word to that extent.